0: You know, uh, remember John Newton, uh, author of Amazing Grace, 18th century English pastor, hymn writer, and God saved him through, his life was a wreck, you know, and went through a lot of apostasy, just godlessness, years, sinned against light when he was a youth, became a slave trader, back and forth from Africa to England, and a lot went on, and in his autobiography entitled, Out of the Depths, he's describing his story about how God saved him, and he writes these words in one of his chapters. He says, March 21st is a day for me to remember. I've never allowed it to pass completely unnoticed since 1748. On that day, the Lord of heaven delivered me out of deep waters. And it was a literal storm. He was crossing the sea and this storm almost destroyed their ship. They they thought they were lost. And he lost in an unconverted state. This violent, this really, he calls it a freak wave actually smashed the upper bow of their ship and blew a hole in the side of their ship in the middle of the ocean. Like, it sucked people out. He should have been swept off the deck, but he was about to run up and the captain told him to do something else. Like, he would have been swept off the deck of the ship. So, it marked a huge turning point in his life. He was in the midst of all that chaos. He's he's yelling with the captain about what to do, how to plug that hole, you know, how to how to survive. And it it blurts out of him. He doesn't know where, but he goes, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of the storm, he surprises himself. He goes, I was so I was instantly struck by my own words. This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in years. His version of foxhole, but deep, deep, it affected him. So from then on, he remembered that day It marked a turning point of this indelible impact on his heart when God calmed the storm and they were able to survive. God delivered him from deep waters of the sea and God began to deliver him from the much deeper waters of his own sin and darkness, so what about you? You know, we've been in this church a number of years, a lot of various storms you've dealt with. And what are those times in your life that you remember that God delivered you? Maybe a big one, maybe a, a smaller one. Or small to others, but to you it was huge. The, this little story we're meditating on today, it's so well known and so precious and dear. God's church it shows the disciples never forgot Jesus's deliverance it marked them this indelible impact it it marked a turning point in their view of Jesus you know very soon we're going to be in that passage where Jesus says who do you say I am and Peter's going to say you're the Christ but see this passage is a huge step towards that kind of confession so let's read it just wonderful Psalm, uh, excuse me, Luke 8, verse 22. Eight twenty two. One day, he, Jesus, so Jesus, one day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and he, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and they were calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, like, who then is this that commands even winds and water? And they obey him. And the grass withers and the flowers fade and this good, good word It continues for us. And so three points, Jesus permits storms in your life. He permits it. Jesus permits storms in your life. Second point is Jesus steals the storms in your life. And the third point is Jesus uses the storms in your life. So Jesus permits the storms in your life. So for Luke, uh, Jesus is the sole initiator of what happens for Luke, Jesus initiates the trip across the lake. It's his idea. Like, he suggests it, even more, he commands them to get in the boat and to go across the lake. And they, they wouldn't have gotten in the storm if they weren't following Jesus. He's the initiator. And the sense is he's carrying out his mission plan that he's traced out several times in his gospel, maybe in chapter four, verse 43, really the Father's purpose for him when he said to his disciples, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. There's this... Heavenly Father mustness to jesus 's ministry. He has to follow through with where the father 's directing him. This is the next stage of king jesus advance of his spreading his gracious kingdom. He needs to cross the lake of Gennesaret, also called the Sea of Galilee, in order to get to the country of the Geres which wonderfully is a Gentile area. He goes into the Gentile areas and he, and he has to get there in part because he has an appointment with a demon-possessed man that has a legion of demons. And it's really interesting in verse 27, it's like the guy's waiting on him. <laughs> like Jesus is pulling up in his boat and he's sitting there watching for him. It just seems like he's going across, he's got an appointment. It's Jesus's idea. But even more than that, he initiates this trip across because he needs to disciple his disciples. He needs to test and strengthen the faith response of his disciples. And if you recall, remember where we've come, this section is from 8.4 through 9.17, and from 8.4 to 8.21, Jesus has been talking about the urgency and need for you to respond personally to Jesus. And so after he's talked about that, now he's gonna test it, and he tests it in the life of his disciples. And so uh, Luke says one day uh, he got into the boat, and that one day ties the event together with this preaching. And so during one of the days when he's preaching, the need to respond personally to him in all the cities and villages of Galilee accompanied by his Twelve apostles and this team of ministry-minded women. So the disciples, he gets them to enter the boat, and maybe even some of these ladies into the boat too. And Mark adds that they set out when evening came. So it's after this full long day of taxing, giving himself in ministry. It's in the evening. And it seems that no sooner does Jesus command them to set out that that he settles in and falls asleep. And so Mark again adds the detail that he sleeps on this cushion. These kinds of boats would have a pillow in the stern. And he goes on one of those pillows that someone could use when they weren't fishing or weren't working, and he rests. But he's out cold. Evidently, Jesus is spent worn out from ministering and preaching, and he just crashes, like instantly, out, and it's this great miracle of the incarnation played out. One of the most precious little details that just highlights the real humanity of Christ. He's God. He is God. I mean, that's the emphasis in the Gospels, in the letters. He is God, but he's man, like he's man, really. God gets tired. God gets wiped out and drained he comes to the end of his rope. Like he experiences weakness. He experiences weariness. God has to sleep and sleep hard. And it's beautiful to think about that God knows that feeling. You just don't have it anymore. You've been giving it all day long, pouring yourself out, and you're just done. He knows that. Like the one that sits at the right hand of the father is the one who knew that feeling when he was out cold. And for you, it's meant for you that God knows what it's like, knows what it's like to pour yourself out and get exhausted. The glorified Christ knows that. So the detail is, is real important for this crisis because Jesus is fast asleep and this, this out of nowhere this fierce storm comes down on the lake. It like screeches down from the mountains. See the Lake of Gennesaret lay 700 feet below uh, sea level. Like it was very low and it had mountains that surrounded it almost on all sides except maybe the southwest I think. And the lake was usually calm because of that but Violent storms could happen and did happen on occasion. They'd usually come in the afternoon. The winds were stronger generally in the afternoon and that was one of the reasons why fishermen fished in the morning and the evening. They didn't have to deal with as much of the wind. However, if a storm did break out in the evening, it could be even more dangerous, more fierce, part of which you just don't see it coming. It captures you unawares. So the cold winds would careen down or rush down the mountains and collide with this warm water that was over the lake, and it was all in this very confined, limited space, so the intensity was really something. And so Luke calls this storm a windstorm, and the word can also be hurricane, it's this gale force winds. And one commentator, well, Matthew uses the word for earthquake here, and one commentator calls it a sea quake, it's like everything shakes. And so it seems this particular storm was especially furious. The waves are so high, they crash onto the boat, they're filling it up, it's about to be swamped, and it's in danger, as Luke says, of sinking. Looks like all is lost. And so the disciples are panicked, they're frantic. I can't imagine what I'd be like on that boat just frantic at their wits' end. And you get the impression that it's chaos. They, they think it's over, they're about to drown. And, and they yell at him, master, master, we are perishing. And their doubling of master just reveals the urgency, the desperation, I mean, you know, gripped with terror, terrorized. And, and you remember that four of these disciples, at least, are professional fishermen. Like, they know this lake. They've been on it a thousand times. They grew up on the lake, it's secondhand to them. They know storms, they've been in storms, they navigated storms, and yet this storm is something else. Like it gets to them, they're unhinged. Terrified, it's a different sort of thing, a different category of storm they've ever faced before. In Matthew they cry out, Lord! In Mark they cry out, Teacher! And Luke, they cry out, master. It's like they're every, all of them are yelling at Jesus. Like everybody on the boat, they're just yelling, shouting. It's pandemonium on the boat. Everybody's distraught. And, and to this point, good for them. Like that's good. They know who to go to when they're traumatized, when they're terrified, when they're scared, when they know they're helpless, when they think it's over, if they know who to go to, good for them. It's faith, they know it. And yet, I mean, Matthew goes, it's this earnest entreaty, like, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Now that's a good prayer. Like, I can't do anymore, save me. But at the same time, they express a whole, don't, they don't express a whole lot of confidence. There's, no, there's no, not a whole lot of trust. It's like, if there's hope, we're going to Jesus. Um, Mark even has them say, teacher do you not care that we are perishing do you not care so part of the trial is not just the storm as bad as it is part of the trial is they think jesus is effectively absent a wall in this situation isn't that realistic for us you know part of our trial what makes our trial so bad is that in that trial we kind of think jesus is gone he's vacated he's not attentive and that's where they are they think he's out of touch with what they're dealing with. And so just look at Jesus so far. What do we learn about him so far? This portrait of Jesus. Well, we see that he is with them. Like he's with them in the storm. He's in the boat and he's in the storm with them. Um, And same token, he's also contrasted to them. He's... He's peacefully resting in the boat while they're hysterical and overcome. And part of that, we say, well, he's God. You know, he knows he has that authority, but he's a real man. He's, he's modeling for us something about that resilience and buoyancy we have because we know the Father loves us and we're found in his hands. He appears to be disinterested and checked out, not concerned about them. But the moment they cry to him, he is on it. And Hendricks in the commentary just says it wonderfully. It's so comforting to know that an outcry of human distress awakens the one whom a violent storm cannot awaken. Have you thought of that in regard to your prayers? You know, sometimes our circumstances are so loud, it's just so loud, we don't think our prayers can get through such volume and chaos, and yet... All that's going on. The boat going up and down, waves rushing. Jesus doesn't wake up, but he wakes up when his people yell at him, call out to him. He's like a mother whose ears are attuned to that baby. And it's just such an important lesson to us because Jesus leads us into the storm. He will do that. You can see the disciples thinking if they had this sort of awareness of that moment, you know, I understand that you sent a storm to Jonah when he was running away from you, but like, we're following you, and we got the storm. Jesus wants us to know, like I am there. I'm solidly, peacefully in control. I've put you in this situation and entrusted this situation to you as hard as it is. I'm not detached, I'm not unconcerned. It may appear so to you, that's part of the temptation or the trial. At least part of what's going on is I'm testing your faith and I am alert to your cries at the mercy seat to hear you call out to me. Whatever turmoil is going on, as hard as it is. Well then second, Jesus stills the storms in your life. So the disciples cry out to Jesus, and Luke says, he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And so one moment, there's this terrible squall. It looks like they're gonna be submerged in the waters. These huge swells are pounding on the boat, and the very next moment, everything ceases. All is calm, it's absolutely still. You can think the moon's reflecting on the water. It's an idyllic scene. Just what they wanted. Because the storm doesn't gradually subside. You know, Normally it's, it's a gradual process. One moment, to the no, one moment to the next. It's just done. <laughs> At Jesus' rebuked, the commotion stops because the winds and the waves immediately obey him. Hendrickson again says... This sentence he goes, in this instance, winds and waves synchronize in the sublime symphony of a solemn silence. That's a great sentence. We see Jesus isn't just sympathetic with us, but he's sovereign over it. So this furious storm, uh, it's a dangerous outworking of this fallen, broken world. We live in a fallen, broken world. But behind this, this uniquely threatening, aggressive storm and the fact that Jesus rebukes it, the fact that Matthew says he muzzles it or ties it shut like it were a beast, it may also imply that behind the, these powerful natural forces, as strong as they are, there may also be demonic forces inciting, stirring them up, bent on destroying Jesus and his disciples in this weak moment when, when they're at night on the water to keep the kingdom of God from going into Gentile territory and maybe somewhat related to that legion of demons. Who knows? But it's this strong, aggressive, menacing storm. It's like, you know, Lord of the Rings illustration really quickly, when they were trying to climb the pass of Caradhras and the wind and the snow and the lightning and then Legolas goes, there's a fell voice on the air. And so Saruman's back there sending the storm. There's something like that going on, it seems, in the description, this very evil situation. But neither the onslaught of nature's fearsome power, the wind of the waves, nor the hostility of demonic forces is any match for Jesus here. He rises, rebukes them. Mark says, peace be still, and everything instantly stops and is perfectly serene. So we've seen in this section of Luke's gospel that Jesus is pressing for a response, that crucial need that you have, not just to hear, but to hear, like take care how you hear. And he's said in this section there's a number of obstacles to hearing well. He talked about various soils and some soils just not good and there's a hardness that can happen or there's the heat of the sun or the thorns or then there's the tendency to cover up the light or like, family pressure or responsibility or stress. All those are obstacles for us hearing well and responding. So Jesus is encouraging us here and saying, I have all authority over all the enemies and over all the obstacles and over all the temptations and pressures and strongholds that you can imagine. Like I stilled waves and wind over creation itself. And so the forces, events that make us feel small and helpless are nothing to him. Like the one that called out light and called out water, called out the winds is the one that also controls them, the God-man. The passage has always been so dear to the church. I mean, think of all the Psalms too that inform this passage, but Christian art in the early church often used the boat on turbulent seas as a symbol of the church. For all its troubles and especially persecution, that we were in a boat on turbulent seas crossing to the other side. And so Origen, the third century theologian said it this way, for as many as are in the little ship of faith are sailing with the Lord, as many as are in the bark of holy church will voyage with the Lord across the waved, tossed life. And they picture that in artwork. It's a favored image also of the present day. Think of the Psalms, you know. Out of the depths I cried to you, or all your waves and breakers swept over me. Or the hymns we sing, like the ones we sang today. When, and... and it is well when sorrows like sea billows roll. All of our troubles pictured as, as these powerful seas that make us feel small and defenseless. But what Jesus is showing is he's sovereign over them. He's sovereign over what the ones you're dealing with right now. The storms of your life, whatever they are, be it sickness or be it grief, be it temptation, just the buffeting of Satan as one hymn writer says. Addiction, relational stress, and breakdown, financial hardship, they appear unstoppable. Jesus says that they're no match for me. Like, even those that we deal with all of our lives, and some things we're gonna deal with all our lives. Jesus is saying, be like that good soil. And the good soil is noted for just like clinging, clinging to me and my promises. You get an image of the disciples clinging to Jesus here. It's, it's why Paul could say in Romans eight, you know, in all these things, and they're dreadful things, fearsome things, he says in all these things, we are more than conquerors because we know Christ. Or, or Philippians could say that favorite verse, be anxious for nothing. It's not a glib statement that doesn't take seriously the dangers and pains of life. It says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present those requests to God, the peace It informs this word, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard you, guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The passage says Jesus is sovereign over it all. If you need an image to say that in the trials in your life, you have it here. We may not understand why he brings that trial to us, but we know a good reason for it is that third point, he's gonna use it in your life. He will use it. Jesus uses the storms of your life. So the story shows us what's always at least one of the main reasons Jesus leads us into storms. And so once he rebukes the wind and the waves, Jesus turns to his disciples and he rebukes them. He rebukes the winds and waves, now he has to rebuke his disciples. So he says, where is your faith? It's like, what's going on with you? Where, where is that faith? You're, you're frantic, you're panicked. You, you, you're living life like I don't exist, like I'm not your master. And then by this question, Jesus signals now, he uses the storms in the lives of his disciples. He's testing, proving, deepening their faith and they need it and we need it. Otherwise we don't really know whether our faith is genuine. So he's not calling them to initial faith to conversion, I mean, they're already his disciples. What he's doing for them is, is growing them. He's calling them to applied faith. Not initial faith, but applied faith. Like faith in action. Jesus is saying, where is that faith that kicks in in times of disaster and recognizes God's control in your life? Like right there in the conflict. Right there in the problem. Where is it that kicks in knowing that Jesus is present and active on your behalf? So Jesus is saying, if you confess me as master, it means to have confidence in me as master in the point of crisis. That I won't leave you, I won't forsake you. It's putting what you believe into work in those times you need it. He's pushing you to make your theoretical belief practical in the moments of pain. And that's really what life is about. Is that we confess a load of things that are beautiful but it's putting them into practice once we're in that situation. So in the face of how Jesus showed up for them in that crisis, the disciples respond in fear and wonder. Like they were terrified by the storm and now it's shifted and they're overwhelmed with fear and wonder now of Jesus. The terror is replaced with amazement. It's a great process. Terror of their circumstances is replaced with amazement for Jesus. They behold him in a new way. It marks a shift in their view of him. Even though they'd seen him heal people, raise the dead, evidently for them there's no category for somebody who was over the winds and the waves. They're astonished. And that leads to the climactic point of the whole story when they say to one another, who then is this? And that's the question, it's always the question, who then is this? We're always learning more of Christ, especially in the storms of our lives. The Christian life is all about Jesus getting bigger, more sufficient, more wonderful, more beautiful for us, more than enough to handle everything. So where then is this? that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. What does that mean about him that he's capable of doing that with a word? Who is it we're walking with, talking with, getting to know, eating with? I mean, he's in a whole different category for us now. And so they could be thinking something along these lines. Yeah, Moses lifted up his staff and the Red Sea parted, but he was praying to the Lord, the Lord did it. Or Elijah prayed and rain fell upon the earth, but but again, he was praying. But Jesus woke up and rebuked the wind and the waves on his own authority, and they stopped. And then they got in the back of their minds the Psalter. They think of Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord. With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. That's what you do. Or Psalm 107, some went down to the sea in ships, "'Doing business on the great waters, "'they saw the deeds of the Lord, "'His wondrous works in the deep, "'for He commanded and raised the stormy wind, "'which lifted up the waves of the sea. "'They mounted up to heaven. "'They went down to the depths. "'Their courage melted away in the evil plight. "'They reeled and staggered like drunken men "'and were at their wits' end.'" Then they cried to the Lord in their troubles, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works for the children of men. I mean, that's what the Lord does. And this man they know uniquely in this unprecedented way He's on the level of Yahweh. They're standing with Yahweh here. They're in a boat with Yahweh the Lord. Like he's done that. Like this maps on perfectly to their situation. That's you right here with us. And then the prophet Nahum and Habakkuk would use the storm as a metaphor for God's enemies coming against, waves of enemies coming against Israel. And they prophesied a time when Messiah would come and he'd still the raging warfare of the enemies of God's people. And you got all this in their background and they're looking and saying, are you that person? Like are you the Lord who's here, who steals the sea and steals your enemies, rescues your people? Could God really robe himself in human flesh and be standing here with us? And that gets us to the heart of the gospel itself because you and I have greater proof that Jesus will be present with us in the storms and also powerful over the storms because we we know the God man. We know that there was a storm that Jesus didn't lead us into. That there is that ultimate storm that's a storm of God's judgment and Jesus left us on the bank. And Jesus went into the waters himself. And he did that for us. He faced that storm and the waves of God's judgment on our behalf. We know that the God-man went into the lake of fire itself. If we would have been terrified of this lake, how much more that lake? Of hell itself, the just judgment against sin. He left us on the bank and he did that. He did that on the cross where the Father judged him, where he paid for all of our debts himself, where he gave us all the righteousness we'd ever need. And in that moment of suffering, he destroyed the power of hell, death, and sin, and he rose triumphant at his resurrection. And he ascended on high to the right hand of God, and because he took our judgment, we know there's no storm that's God's judgment against you if you're in Christ. There's none of that. There may be a discipline to grow your faith by a loving father who loves you in Christ. But there is no judgment outstanding because he did that on your behalf, and that's the gospel. But it also says, you got to have Christ. You got to have the one who took the storm on your behalf. And if you don't, you stand there defenseless before it on your own. And so it's a call to faith in Christ. And to celebrate such grace and such love on behalf of sinners like you and me, because he wanted us as his disciples in his boat to carry us across the sea into the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the gospel. May that be the gospel we're believing in practically in the hard realities of our everyday life. Amen. Let's stand.